Laura Medinas. And I'm Ricardo Deacon. <laughs> and this is the Recommendation Game, Film of the Week podcast, where we take turns to recommend a film the other has not seen. We watch it and then we meet to discuss it. You're listening to Dublin Digital Radio. This week's film is Morris from 1987, directed by James Ivory, produced by Ishmael Merchant and Paul Bradley, screenplay by Kit Hesketh Harvey and James Ivory, based on Morris by E.M. Forster. Starring James Wilby, Hugh Grant, Rupert Graves, Denholm Elliott, Ben Kingsley. <laughs> I did not realize Ben Kingsley. I was like, he is so familiar. Like <laughs> his American accent. Yeah. <laughs> Music by Richard Robbins. Cinematography by Pierre Lehomme. And edited by Catherine Wenning. <clears throat> and the synopsis is... In 1909, Morris Hall enters Cambridge, where he befriends wealthy Clive Durham. Clive confesses he is sexually attracted to Morris, who realises he is a homosexual when he begins to return Clive's feelings. Or perhaps he knew earlier. The two embark on an intense but chaste affair to avoid tarnishing Clive's reputation, but eventually the relationship ends and Clive marries Anne. While visiting Clive, Morris is drawn towards his friend's servant, Alex Scudder. And that's it. Also, <laughs> Alex Scudder, played by your ma, who plays fucking um, uh, uh, Detective Lestrade. Yeah, he's Lestrade in Sherlock. Yeah. I did not realize that until afterwards. I was like, oh my god, that's so funny. This uh, week's film. We're back in the eighties. Uh, I was going to say, was it directed by Ricardo? This <laughs> in utero. This week's film. <laughs> Two years before, yeah. This week's film is picked by. Uh, Ricardo, Ricardo, uh, why did you pick this movie? Well, like uh, I really like uh, most of the canon of Ivory Merchant because they oh oh backwards like it. Ivory will appreciate oh, that. Ivory, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, he's, I, a, he's the teller of the situation. <laughs> yes, I went into the into their Uber as it would be uh, through um, Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. And I uh, really enjoy how they use, uh, how they adapt works of fiction um, in a very strange way because they usually get stuff, books that are overstuffed with uh, philosophy and... Like, and then just chop it out. Chop everything out <laughs> and make it Not about that. the characters in a way that... My brother got pissed off when he watched Remains of the Day after reading the book because he read the book before watching the movie while I did it the reverse way. Yeah. And so much of the book is about how the character that Anthony Hopkins plays is completely obsessed with the art of being uh, a servant. Mm-hmm. And how there's a philosophy to it and how it's a life choice and everything else. And that's hiding his... like his pain and suffering that because he's so obsessed with that because he keeps telling you the book is in first person Mm -hmm. and mentioning this and you know that he's longing for the Emma Thompson character but he refuses to say it and you just discover his feelings through his complete uh, lack of interest on the topic almost that he's interested in every single topic on how the house is run Mm. except when he makes it so matter of fact that they share tea every afternoon and kind of that kind of thing. And it's oh. so repressed mm. that even in the book uh, that is told in the first person, uh, it's not acknowledged. 
Well, in the movie, they realized they can't do that. So they just used Anthony Hopkins' eyes to do all of that. Mm. And there's like one scene that Emma Thompson is and just it, and, speaking. And Emma Thompson yeah. being fab, obviously. And there's a scene in the Remains of the Day that uh, Emma Thompson is speaking to Anthony Hopkins. And there's a moment that you realize that he stopped listening and is just looking. And it's so hard to do that as like a performer or like have as a director and a writer the trust of the mm. actor to do that. And I think that watching their other work, it's uh, something that it's present everywhere in the Howard's End, in Room with a View, and in this. And I thought it would be an interesting movie to choose as well because we mentioned quite a lot when mentioning queer cinema, mm-hmm. uh, Call Me By Your Name. And James Ivory wrote Call Me By Your Name. Oh, yeah. Which it's insane because he wrote it at the ripe old age of 87. Mm. <laughs> and it's like such a youthful film. And I thought it would be like an interesting kind of comparison since we often compare <sighs> films to it, even films that are not queer, like... Uh, mm. Uh, our beloved month of summer, whatever the fuck, beloved of August, August yeah. <laughs> summer, yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite month of the year, summer month. Well, it is Ireland, <laughs> or summer week. Yeah, yeah, like the the joke that is like, can't wait for near next summer. I hear it's on a Tuesday. <laughs> and um, uh, I also like the. I think that is one of those convergences between material and director that is very perfect. Because Ivory himself was had a relationship with Merchant, which was hidden from the press, whatever. That it was even like making this movie, they, uh, they it was unaware that they were more than just business partners. Yeah, it was very well hidden in a very British way. That like, well, yeah. <clears throat> you could, they feel very at home in this material. Let's say, and also it's the Ian Foster, the guy that wrote this book, that he also wrote like a passage to India and Howard's End and Room with a View. So this is like the third adaptation of an Ian Foster novel that they did. Yeah, because yeah, they're all kind of early eighties, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. The, like Room with a View was definitely before this no this film. Uh, I I'm not aware if Howard's End is before or after. I think mm. that it's like it's somewhere in between. Let's say, but um, it's part of a trilogy. The Morris uh, was a book that Foster wrote around the 1910s, 1913, 14. Oh, and was posthumously published. Written in, right at the time. Yeah, that it's set. Uh, and he, it was released in 1971, a year after his death, because he didn't want people to know that he was a homosexual as well. Yeah. That it's a book that is completely steeped with the fear of the author himself mm. about the repercussions, because he was like the book was written while the uh, wild fucking case was going on and shit like that. Mm. So. Obscenity. Um, so it, it is very much a book written by somebody that has a is repressing his homosexuality because of fear of culture and is directed by a director that is doing the same at that time mm. and it was revealed afterwards that they it came out so i thought that uh, within that there's so much meta commentary about society and such both in the book and the film that i wanted to discuss uh, also, I think that it, it's really strange watching this movie and seeing where Hugh Grant's career went because he's so fucking good as a like proper actor in mm. this movie. Uh, not to say that 
he's not absolutely fantastic and perfect in Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is a film that I dearly like. But <laughs> dearly like? <laughs> dearly love. But, uh, I dearly like you. And it's a movie that I always forget about the fucking funeral part. <laughs> so <laughs> depressing. Like, because I'm like, oh, one wedding, two weddings, three actor. weddings. Yes. Oh, bing. Uh, bring it up he's brilliant and this is also it's funny very odd opening to a movie and um, uh, but I think it works like it sets the tone in a way that it's uh, well like you're Does kinda, it? well like <laughs> let's get to your comments oh, in a while and uh, <laughs> talking about your your uh, uh, your pleasure in uh, looking at posters and, and shit like that the, the original poster of this movie it's so good it's yeah. so not 80s like, yeah it's beautiful just riding the I horses thought it must have been the re-release but poster but it's not it's beautiful the re-release poster if anything looks more like an 80s poster is that where it's like Hugh Grant's face yeah, yeah. there's kind of like yeah. the, the reflection maybe not almost. 80s but that kind of borderline 80s 90s uh, it looks more like period drama it's like the cover of Emma late, or something late yeah. 2000s independent cinema cinema <laughs> Um, and uh, what was the other thing that? I, oh yeah, also uh, not to, like films that I do. I do a bit of research that I pick. I never research your films because I don't want them to be tainted by other people's opinions. Yeah. Maybe if it's like one salient question that I have when I don't understand something, but this movie I was looking at the critical reception at the time. And it has of all the takes and all the research and what a hundred episodes nearly we've done. Mm-hmm. I think I I found the, the worst take by a film critic I have ever read. Ooh, is it a film critic we know? Uh, I don't. I can't remember the name <clears throat> of the critic, but he was the critic of the Times in London on uh, nineteen eighty-seven. Okay. okay, don't know who that is. Uh, the, the fucking it's so nuclearly bad. Like I was, uh, <laughs> oh, I was like I'm watching it. It's like oh <clears throat> my fucking god how did like it went to print or anything and then i remember it's the fucking 80s that they were, says, it is somewhat uh morally wrong to make a movie so pro-homosexuality in the midst of a fucking aids epidemic uh, i did see something about that yeah i don't know that that's exactly how he phrased it though if it, if it was it is the quote is something that i don't know if it is responsible to make a movie that it's so like open about its homosexuality oh. when we're in the midst of an AIDS epidemic. I know it's like 1987 and everything, but yeah, that's fairly misjudged. Also, like uh, there are little things about like <clears throat> I love history and stuff like that, and I know how the something that I like about Merchant Ivory that I I wouldn't be able to watch Downton Abbey, let's say, <laughs> because I I I like Britishness. To a certain extent, like when it's being criticized overtly, like this uh, Cambridge kind of boys club, boys club, etc., that is skewed and used to also comment in other parts of society. That is almost a this is heightened, so it's easier to to explain other things in society. The same way as like uh, in um, what's the name of the movie uh, Shadowlands, the movie the Richard Attenborough for movie the I think Hawkins plays C.S. Lewis. Oh. That it's about how British <clears throat> men are so uptight that, like, even when dating an American woman that is, like, a normal person, they're like, oh, how do you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, would you like some tea after sex or something like that? <laughs> so, um, 
but I, uh, but I do <laughs> enjoy uh, part like him. Like I'm not surprised that uh, Merchant and Ivory have tackled so many of uh, Ian Foster's work because they're both from upper class mm. backgrounds, uh, but also disdainful of what upper class people do and the hypocrisy of it all, etc. Mm. Uh, the Ian Foster that that's a thread throughout Ian Foster's uh, career. So for me, that's why I wouldn't be able to watch like Downton Abbey because it's a little bit too pro like the dude, you know, like it's not like he's the hero, like well, Hugh Bonneville or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, geez, like to the stake with you, like fucking. You can't. I love Downton Abbey, uh, but it's awful. I remember whenever Claire Gleason, because <clears throat> in the second season, they finally get to World War One. And because um, like Downton Abbey covers quite a long period of time, yeah. And um, so I'm not really aging anyone, but uh, yeah. Whenever in the second season they get to World War One, and Claire was like, "I couldn't watch the World War One stuff. It was just so badly handled." It was like, "Yeah, okay." I don't. I don't, I, I am able to like put the blinders on yeah. for something as silly as as Downton Abbey. So, uh, what did you think of Morris? Um. <laughs> this is like one of the very few films um, where it, it gets away with the amount of Britishness and it almost couldn't possibly be British enough. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Basically, like you kind of tapped into one of like, you know, my my not my favorite things, but it's it's a it's a kind of a movie or a kind of a show or a kind of setting that I really appreciate. And it's the Oxford Cambridge, yeah. uh, you know, university you know, like academia, um, like, and also shout out to Claire Gleason because Claire Gleason also loves this. I mean, like, I will watch this in anything. It, like, it's one of the things that makes, um, uh, you know, we're very obsessed with Endeavor, which is the early Morse yeah. stuff. And it's a really, really like, high budget, really well made. Um, I think it's ITV or something, but um, obviously that's all set around Oxford. So it's just Oxford porn with like great mysteries and really great guy plays Endeavour and stuff. You should have um, been uh, around in the 80s because after Chariots of Fire made such a like dent in the box office that there was like, <laughs> you know how Hollywood and film industry is like, oh, people like that shit. Let's yeah, make yeah, tons well, Let's replicate that. <laughs> yeah. Let's try and make like, you know, let's just mix genres. We'll take the action movie. We'll put it in Cambridge. And that's actually um, how they made, they got the money to make this movie. It's like, oh, it's Chariots of Fire, with, but with gay people kind of thing. Instead, I'm of, so glad. instead of running. <laughs> I'm so glad that they don't do that anymore. Um, yeah, like, I mean, to the point at which we were currently watching this horrendous show called A Discovery of Witches, which wins on, like, three levels. One, because it's crazy supernatural witches bullshit. Two, it has Matthew Good in it. And three, it's set in Oxford. It's so... It's, there are no words, but... It's Oxford porn. Like, oh, you see the colour palette of it. But um, this is also the perfect time of year for this movie because every night year, this time of year, I re-listen to the Secret History audiobook, Red, yeah. Red by Donna Tartt. And I'm like nearing the end of it at the minute. And that's like... Oh, good old... Written... Old boy. Written... Started, old she, man. Sorry. Old man. Yeah, I have that written down because there's an awful lot of old man in this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Um, um, 
she started writing that whenever she was in college in the 80s and you know like and obviously harbored as her characters do a real obsession for like England and like you know England in the fall and you know like the idea of like Hampton trying to in like the actual college she went to like replicating these British institutions and stuff so it, it was it was it was it was like perfect kind of setting for me but um even the fact that they're doing, they have, there's like a Greek class. Is it Greek or Latin? No, it's Greek because they keep talking about like Athenian and, you know, like the the indecency of like the Greeks and stuff. Uh, but yeah, so like the setting for it is fascinating. Also, you know, pre-war Britain, which I also always love, like pre-first war, pre-second world war. Like it, it's like the, the early teen, the early tens and like the thirties are really interesting. Like especially like settings for books and films and stuff. But um. Yeah, like, this film is really interesting. Like, this could have sounded probably like a criticism, but in a way, it's kind of like the most, like, more, like, conventional, say, like, LGBT film that we've watched in the sense of, like, Hollywood period drama, yeah. kind of. Like, because I was thinking about this and I was like, well, you know, like, say we did, um, uh, we did Weekend, which is kind of like a conventional indie movie, but it's more, it's, it's you know, they're just doing something kind of different. Or then, you know, obviously, like, Priscilla is, like, a whole other thing altogether. Um, and, like, you know, even if you compare, like, movies of the era, like Priscilla. I was trying to remember what year Priscilla uh, came out. 1990s. Uh, yeah, it was like, yeah, but... um. Because I was thinking a lot about, like, and the band played on and how that's obviously such a different movie. So, like, you know, we were kind of, like, this is kind of an interesting, because it's, like, sort of, like, the, not, mainstream is the wrong word, but it kind of is. Because it's merchant and ivory, you know what I mean? It comes with a lot of weight behind it. You know, and you think of, like, how, how much money was made on, like, the other adaptations that they yeah. did and stuff. Uh, but, like, in that no way lessened my enjoyment of it whatsoever. Um, like, <laughs> well, I think what, like, what I find most interesting, I mean, you were saying about, like, the characters and stuff and how, like, it becomes more about the characters than, like, the sort of philosophizing behind, around it and stuff. And I think it's so interesting about this film is that, like, that's the treatment of its main character. Like, I had to keep reminding myself that Morris is the main character in this film, which is so interesting because it's, like, they managed to, like, keep you interested in, like, him and his plight, even though uh, like, he's not the most, he's not the, like, he's the least likable and the least interesting person in the whole movie. Like, even in comparison to, like, you know, the very, very, very side, small female characters or, you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah. he really fundamentally is. And, like, so much of the time, like, he's not even the center of the scenes he's in. Like, he gets overtaken by other people all the time, especially Clive. But even, like, his like his family or, like, the, you know, it, the camera's constantly wandering, almost, like, wandering away from him. Sometimes you just kind of forget, but you almost feel like Hugh Grant's about to steal the movie away yeah. from him. Um, which is, like, he's... But it's kind of like he's sort of, like, a side character in his own life or something. Yeah. Um, but, like... Um, but what it ends up doing is that Morris is like the one who's changing. He's like, he's the one who's developing and he's the one who's like slowly building towards his inevitable rebellion, um, which was a nice catharsis at the end of this movie as much as I'll get to the ending because I thought it was a little bit, little bit neat, but um, not neat. That's the wrong word, but yeah, we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, he's like slowly building towards this inevitable rebellion, kind of almost under your nose a little bit because you're kind of, you're so expecting it to go one way or you're, you know, but like there's whole, especially like when you, you know, you're following Hugh Grant to 
whenever we would go to Greece with them, like that feels as if, you know, we're going off on a whole time, you know, it, it's, and you kind of just follow it because you're so interested in Hugh Grant's character, which I find really interesting. It's kind of, it's a very like interesting and like strangely brave thing to do that to like, it's, it's, it's the irony of that, the fact that it's called Morris, you know, yeah. what I like about, I was thinking about this earlier and I was like, what I like about this is like queer cinema. Um, I think it's like how, um, everything you said about, um, the fact that, you know, they were gay, the fact that the writer was gay, that, you know, but that not just that they were gay, but that they were uh, making, like, writing the book and making the film under very similar circumstances to the characters themselves becomes almost, like, autobiographical, it comes almost cathartic for the filmmakers and for the writer, uh, which is really, really interesting. It, it doesn't make me, it doesn't surprise me you said that when I was, because when I was thinking about it earlier, just about, like, how, like, um, like, calmly it handles, like, the homosexual element to it. And how, like, like their relationship is chaste, let's say, but the film isn't. Yeah. But it's not, like, it's not lurid either. It's not, it's not, like, um, gratuitous. It's, but it's not unerotic either. You know what I mean? And so, it has a very good use of uh, nudity as well. Which I yeah, that, that's what I was going to say, is that, like, you know, there are there are like kind of sexy scenes or whatever, or like scenes that feel like you know like sexually charged, but like the nudity is like it's somehow it's like it's if you've not there's not very much nudity in this, like it's quite yeah. and most of the time it's very, but it manages to be like it's it's very rarely seen, but when it is, it's so unremarked upon by the camera that you don't even really. And it's also like, linked to the fact that is the, that's the moment that he has become truly naked in front of another yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So it's it becomes almost a metaphor, a little bit on the nose, but <laughs> well, uh, not seen yet. But let's say like whenever he's in the changing room at the boxing yeah. ring and like you know they're all there in the showers or whatever, it doesn't feel feel gratuitous it doesn't feel it's not quite like you know like that the one of those famous scenes in um uh when Vigo Mortensen's wrestling in oh, the yeah, towel and that that's the kind of thing that's like oh my god dick you know you're like whoa whereas like at this I was just like oh. you know because it's it it manages it handles it in a in a strangely like British but also European way I, I think it, it's a comment especially being like the fact that James Ivory is uh, like at the time was not out as a homosexual I think it was a comment to show that gay people are not just obsessed with every man that they go in the street yeah. and see that they're not just like creepy predators that will target anything yeah, for like he some sort of it. some sort of like sexual maniac yeah, like the uh, he makes the point of making Morris notice that there's like gay men, uh, gay men, uh, men playing around uh, near him with towels and water naked, mm. and that he's just laughing at the game rather than go, oh, there's a naked guy, oh yes, yeah, and I think that it was like particular eighties thing that you know, even like fucking watching like Eddie Murphy comedy specials and shit like that that haven't aged at all that is like oh yeah gay men really just pretend to be gay so they can go out with your girlfriends and then <laughs> like, yeah. a particularly particularly dangerous type of ladies man yeah uh, <laughs> um yeah i like as well like it's portrayal of like sexuality itself and how like deeply personal it is is quite interesting kind of things into what you're saying there about how the idea that like you know gay men just target anything because they're you know the idea that like 
the two characters dealing with it in completely different ways, but they're not even as it's like polar opposites, say, because like, you know, Morris doesn't kind of like, you know, become empowered and just like, it's a very long journey of like loneliness and like self-hatred. And, you know, he's not, he's not that different to how like Hugh Grant deals with it in a way, but they just kind of come out in different conclusions, let's say. But, you know, the idea that like, sexuality is so ingrained in how you are as a person and what your experiences are and and you know that it's it's never one thing it's always different and i thought that was really interesting as well like pretty like for an 80s movie um a movie dealing with sexuality at all never mind the fact that this is gay men like it's it's really interesting um it is hilarious how much Tension Abbey, obviously, like not from this specifically, but like how much of the like tropes of Downton Abbey are straight out of this movie. It's so funny. It's like, oh god, like even um, nobody would expect a Spanish influence. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, in Downton Abbey, it's the convenient Spanish influence yeah. that kills off like <laughs> sorry spoiler for Downton Abbey still watch it it's fucking great but completely uh, side note uh, unlike my Lavinia section that I found out uh, like a few months ago uh, do you know why the Spanish influenza is called the Spanish influenza nope because the Spanish influenza actually kicked off in Germany it was part of the reason why the war ended in 1918 because the army was so fucked with the German army uh, like there's other reasons like they wouldn't win the war but w- they would have made it to 1919 yeah because it ended <laughs> in November so like they w- would have been able to sit through the winter kind of thing even You're though they're starving to the history hour with Ricardo Deacon and uh, the thing is that Germany by that stage also there was like outbreaks because of prisoners uh, of war etc in France and England already mm. but all of them by censorship didn't want the other side to know that there was an epidemic <laughs> on so the only fucking then spain started getting it how many millions of people died yeah that and that was a huge problem it's because Uh, then spain got it so they thought that it was spain and they didn't have censorship so they reported this like oh yeah there's a strange uh, outbreak uh, here bit of an epidemic uh might uh we'll we'll contain it though don't you worry and everybody else is like covering their ears (laughs) going like la 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 we're grand no 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 it's just a bit of a flu there fuck the british uh, it's just your common garden variety flu, which also kills lots of people because it's the start of the century. Yeah. But still, not not that dangerous flu that they've got down in Spain. Remember um, somebody uh, complained, going like, uh, complained to me. I think uh, uh, I can't remember who was. Uh, I was talking about Shakespeare, and they mentioned like Romeo and Juliet. Perhaps it was Alex. Yeah. Uh, the, Shout out to Alex. Hello, Alex. Uh, the, uh, she complained. Uh, she mentioned like uh, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, how nobody. Uh, moans about like wonders like oh Juliet just died out of nowhere and now I'm thinking it's like Jesus it was the 15th century it's like you'd be surprised if your kid makes it too yeah, that's why you have like 15 kids you so you're at least yeah. Yeah. And you get a good five to yeah. look after you <laughs> if you're lucky I like those odds. there's no retirement either <laughs> no exactly um uh, like uh, what uh, it kills me about movies like this going back to Morris is that the uh, accent the Scudder has is the dead accent that doesn't exist anymore. So it sounds so fake when people it does, speak yeah. it. Yeah. But it's so accurate for the time period. And I think that it's uh, uh, very uh, it smart to do it. It does feel kind of at times like another language almost. Because yeah. like he's speaking and I'm like, what? You know, but... Uh, what? 
do you have to talk a little bit about scudders because this is, does actually link into um uh actually we'll come back to, to scudders because i want to talk first about um the opening uh or the ending well i was going to talk about the acting okay it's, yeah and then we'll get to scudders and then we'll get to the opening and ending um yeah, like the, the acting, I think is quite consistently really good. Um, I always prefer Hugh Grant as like, you know, like not a, like a slime ball, let's say, and like you know he's done that a few times. Um, but generally, just as like spineless isn't the right word, but bumbling. Uh, no, bumbling is the wrong word here because he shows up in this, and you're right that this is a like it's it, this is a performance. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's really acting here and that sounds terrible, but he's not just playing the Hugh Grant trope. Like he's so young here, but he like he's so in like captivating in a way that I have like really have never seen him. Like and he's he's so young, but he just he draws you in. Like he draws the camera towards him. And like, you know, you get a little bit of the bumbling, but He's just, he's nothing of what he becomes later on. It's a, well, and, happen, that's why I think uh, I deviated in my point there when I mentioned the uh, for weddings and a funeral. Mm. That I think that that's when the trope of Hugh Grant mm. became a thing. And it's kind of like, uh, uh, kind of sad that mm. even though it's like a great thing, is that then he became typecast in a way like that. Mm. And then, uh, but then he kind of he had the sort of reinvention then of breaking it in something like about a boy, which he's great in. You know, Paddington but, too. He's absolutely um, brilliant in Paddington too. He, it's like a deranged performance, <laughs> like that makes Nicole Kidman's performance in Paddington one very grounded. But I love Paddington. Um, yeah, like it was just really fascinating because you, you, he comes in and you're like, oh, here's Hugh Grant, but he's not Hugh Grant. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's playing, he's Clive. And like that was really interesting. Have you seen Reminds of the Day? No. There's a scene that him and uh, so, like his uncle or something, like uh, Anthony Hawkins works for like, Hugh Grant's uncle. Mm. And. Uh, Is he in that as well? Yeah, yeah. He oh. he plays like the, the uh, nephew of the, the king, do- not the, the king of the castle. <laughs> Like the Lord of the Manor, uh, played by Edward Fox, and because Edward Fox can't have the the chats, let's say, he goes to Anthony Hopkins, who's serving the 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 main butler, and goes, "Oh, uh, my nephew is of age of marriage now. Uh, you should uh, talk to him. You know, like men talk, like you know the <laughs> me, the the birds and the bees, and the awkward conversation between Anthony Hopkins being like so." So British. Hugh Grant being kind of like modern, but still like 1910s. Vulva. Kind of the, because it's like World War Two. this one, that is like 1930s or something. Yeah. That, but still super British. That is, uh, Anthony Hawkins goes, you know, there are birds and bees. And then he just looks around and flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and earth. And then regrowth. <laughs> and life. And Hugh Grant's face. It's so funny because he's like, what the fuck is the butler talking to me <laughs> about? Uh, like, uh, I do heavily recommend Remains oh. of the Day. It's such a good movie. Like, And also Howard's End in the Room with a View. Like, if you like mm. Britishness, kind of Edwardian era yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, I do love Edwardian that. era. I'm like, I always forget it. And I'm like, oh, God, this is great. Um, Sorry, you were saying other things about performance? Yeah, just, it's really, really enjoyable. And I... 
I feel like, especially like in the last couple of years, like Hugh Grant has just become such a grumpy fucker. Um, and he's kind of redeemed himself a bit by being in Paddington, but for a while there, it was just like, yeah. oh God, this guy. And he was just doing the later years romantic comedies with like American directors and stuff. And it was like, no. I do want to see a very British scandal as well. Oh, yeah. That was because after we finished Endeavour, we were trying to find like very similar set British things and that I remember that had just come out but we never actually watched it so just to mention the performance of Morris mm. oh like, yeah uh, he's really good I think it was also described as uh, a performance that is uh, purposely distracted mm. as in that he seems always somewhere else in the scene in the way that um, any other actor in that role might have seen somebody that is like disinterested in mm. the in the part you know, like Keanu Reeves in a bad movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he just seems he to just be... He just wants to go surfing. Yeah. <laughs> he it... just wants to go and build his motorbikes. Johnny Utah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he, he gives it all in fucking Point Break. But I'm talking about, like, fucking like he's looking romantic comedy, like bad romantic comedies or something I like that. I do want to see that one he's in with Winona Ryder. Though. No, it's meant to be good because, like, <laughs> they're so just bad. so bitchy and stuff like that. They're both giving them all and kind of subverting their... Uh, yeah, their, their later tropes, tropes yeah. even. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like, I think that it, it is a very good performance. Uh, I, I, I particularly enjoy the amount of scenes about eating breakfast, which yep. is... Yeah, he eats a hearty breakfast every morning (laughs) for setting off on the 8.27 train. (laughs) To the city. (laughs) Oh, God. I Um, love love that scene when uh, Hugh Grant faints and then he kisses kisses him. Fan him, fan him. (laughs) He's trying to explain to his mother Mm. why he kissed him. And it's like, oh, you shouldn't tell him. He'd be immensely crossed. Uh, but, you know, me, I, I find him very dear. And his mom is like, I know. I love him more than you. I feel like because you're watching it, and you're like, how how does no one notice them? And this, but at the same time, like, it's so characteristic of that. Cre- like, it's like the kind of Etonian kind yeah. of relationship as well of like the you know we like you know or, or like you know the irish comparison being like people who went to black rock college yeah. you know what i mean that kind of like you know you are boys forever you know and it's like even the never-ending reunions and it's that kind of old boys club and stuff and um, the same with the delholm fucking what's his name delholm ah uh, which one the doctor Oh, who's King also, Ben Kingsley? No, no, no the, the yeah. friend doctor that he's like. <laughs> There's oh, nothing wrong with you. <laughs> he's like, oh, uh, I got something. I have a sickness in me. Oh, we'll clear it right up. When did you get it, son? <laughs> <laughs> I love that because like STDs are fine. <laughs> like, like he like touches the penis with the pen. <laughs> so it's like, what are you even doing? <laughs> and also like the 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 role that I really know him from is uh, as Marcus in uh, Indiana Jones. You know. Uh, Harrison Ford's uh, fellow professor. Oh, who is also like generic really, old professor dude. Yeah, that he <laughs> is also friends. It's that kind of character that he's so fucking misused in the first movie mm. that they completely rewrite his character on the third movie and people didn't notice that it was like oh it seems different because in this first movie he's completely competent yeah and then like in the third movie he's like such a bumbling buffoon <laughs> that is... a lot of use of the word bumbling this week um <laughs> uh 
Yeah, like um uh yeah, um I, yeah, I think kind of across the board the performance is really good. Um, even uh, your man who plays um um Riz Risley, Riz Risley, uh Oh yeah, the the other Yeah, the uh, guy who goes to prison, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah like he's fantastic again how you think that he's brought in you think he's going to be so much more prominent at the beginning yeah. and then like that opening scene you, even that opening scene you pay no attention to Morris whatsoever yeah. there's like five other more interesting people in the scene and Morris just like you know except having this little contrarian kind of like moment or whatever it's like you leave that scene and you don't even realize that's Morris <laughs> like and I, I love old timey technology as well because looking for the symphony is like this know, boxes. Like, what's in the boxes? Evil. <laughs> Wagner. Um, yeah. And um, just a note because I think that I, uh, I really like the performance <clears throat> and uh, how it's dealt with uh, uh, Hugh Grant's wife. Oh yeah, we're gonna actually. I because I was thinking about that earlier. And I forgot to write it down. So thank you for reminding me that um, she is actually. I'm fairly sure in Downton Abbey as an incredibly underwritten, just generic bitchy character, which is really depressing because she's really good in this. And when she turns up at the start on the phone, you're kind of like, oh, you know, this is the sort of like stock unaware wife. But they have some really great little scenes together, yeah. and you really buy. Like, that, you know, she's not just, like, a beard or whatever. You know, that she's kind of... He cares for her. And that, you know, they they have an actual relationship, which and, is quite nice. And I also think uh, you can see that she she suspects what's going on, but she loves him so much that yeah. she's like, I'll allow it as long as that, I'm the wife. Kind that's of what thing. I was going to say about the family of how, like, how, how does no one notice? But it's almost that, like, to to like even conceive of it is so horrifying to them that like they will allow themselves to make excuses and we were talking about also class before and it's mm. uh, very telling as well how they don't hide their feelings and their behaviors in front of the help yeah because if the help were to tell somebody about their behavior they won't be believed no they would be believed but they'd be sacked and never given a reference before mm, then because then it's like the the number one thing is being uh keeping Discreet. discretion mm. because if you spill the beans to somebody it's like if you're the boss why don't you think that maybe they've told somebody else about what i do mm. or they'd speak about amongst themselves as well so mm. it's kind of very like how little they give a shit about these people and how superior they feel that when they're like in bed or whatever and your one is coming like the first time that i watched it it's like oh she's gonna know and then mm. They just keep going, like she's not there. Yeah. And I realize they don't care. It doesn't matter. Like they could yeah. fuck in front of her, yeah. and she wouldn't be able to do anything, or yeah. they wouldn't give a shit. Like they'd so be so weird. Like I have for, like forever. The weirdest thing is the idea of like, and it's the kind of thing that they they sort of acknowledge in Dungeon Abbey the idea of having a valet and someone who dresses you and how fucking weird that is yeah <laughs> you know well, but in fairness the clothes that rich people wore at that time you couldn't dress by yourself well my favourite of all the outfits is um is wow fuck I need to look this up because I laughed so hard um oh yeah are you going to be wearing your cricketing flannels <laughs> I also realized that I really, 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 really don't understand cricket. Even more so than I thought I didn't. Um, but I don't want you to explain cricket, so please don't. I don't know. Like, they oh, hit the ball whatever for days. And they just run up and down, apparently? Yeah. I was like, what? It's like the basis would be like, yeah, you hit up and like, down. Uh, yeah, that's enough of that. But uh, we do have to talk about scudders. Um 
and the beginning and the end so yeah you know, okay sorry no i just through. briefly want to say that like as much as i like that um actor and you know that he's established and and but at the same time he feels like a bit of a trope of the kind of like he's like the, the sort of the fearless commoner you know he's like the wise fearless you know and it's like the the uptight character and the, the i just felt a little bit like that i don't feel like he's like complete like um he's not wafer thin or anything and i think that um uh, he's given some of the best lines as well. Actually, that was the other thing I really liked about this is the Edwardian language. Yeah. Um, that is not made in obvious of intentionally. But in this, it's just it's because it's it's not so far from our own English. It's not like Jane Austen era. You know what I mean? It's yeah. It's much closer to the way we speak, but it's just the little differences that I love. I love the way they speak. I really enjoyed that. And, and then so you have Scudder's take on language yeah. is really interesting because he 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 still. Has has that kind of like strange formality of old English, but with the kind of like you know working class take, yeah, yeah, and, like which is great. And uh, I I particularly like Scudder in the way that he's not. It would have been I think that it's particularly important in the sense of like in Foster as a, a critic of uh, British society at the time and like upstairs downstairs kind of mm. divide is that. Scudder is a, a, a destruction and combination of a trope that it, I, I suppose that the book itself or even the movie wouldn't have the impact of the character. But considering that this book was written, let's say Lady Chatterley's Lover came out in like <clears throat> 1920 or something like that. Mm. Yeah. But the trope of the rich woman falling for the gamekeeper mm. had been around for years and years from like. Just not that explicitly. Yeah, and also from naughty books and stuff like that. No, like as in like very explicit that it'd be like in the in the ah, so this was trash the department. This kind was of the thing. break into mainstream. Well, like no, because <laughs> the book came out in the seventies. Mm. But this was kind of a comment of using a trope that is for uh, sing for straight sexual films mm. and using the same trope with a gay story. Sorry, yeah. not films because it was nineteen thirteen. Uh, using a. Uh, a trope for in straight literature, literature mm. even though it was a salacious literature at the time. Because really, like, Lady Chatterley's Lover was the, the book that kind of straddled the divide of, like, being almost banned, but not quite banned. That, uh, like, people, high middle class would read it. Mm. And it's <laughs> actually, you know. I've reading it and just be like, all they talk about is mining. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> in between all the writing, obviously. And uh, so, like, it's uh, um, that this movie kind of, but also, like, every time that the gameskeeper is brought in, is always the virility of him that makes him special. Mm. It's not the smarts or his emotions or whatever. It's because he's a chap of the earth. He's, like, working with his hands. He's always, like, muscle-bound because he has to lift shit and cut down shit and works day in, and day out. And he can, out he can wear whatever. a hat when he's yeah. wearing cricket or when he's playing cricket. <laughs> yeah, so I think that that's... Yeah, the kind of like of the woman falling for the gardener, yeah. So, like, <laughs> a kind of, they, they went up to fucking Douglas Sirk, that idea <laughs> of, like, that vibe. Oh, know? I love that, baby. So, um, so, yeah, I think that it's a smart kind of oh, subversion of the... Rock Hudson, <laughs> you oh, can renovate a barn yeah. for me any day. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the the ending or the beginning, rather, I don't, I don't think that it sets the tone. It felt just odd. 
Because I feel like the, as as heightened as the movie is, it's not quite as kind of like, you know, ooh, 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 as this is. This is a bit kind of like, I don't know, like, ooh, genitals. I don't know. It's just a bit odd. I it was felt, an odd opening. Like, it, yeah. I felt that what it did was just be able to put everything, Ill, like, because I think that that being explicit about how fucking uninformed people were about sexuality and stuff mm. like that even in a straight relationship never mind in a homosexual one is that like uh, i think that having that scene is also a pinpoint something about morris mm-hmm. that he doesn't have a male figure to follow yeah because he has do you have uh, any uh, person to give the, you the, the conversation. Tone, the tone of it, I think, than anything else. But I think it's the kind of... The tone is over the top kind of mm. thing, but I think it's that moment of the guy that is trying to be nice and, like, inf- like informative, <laughs> but he's still so oppressed that like he can't... Like, that he'll say <laughs> penis in uh, Latin or whatever. This is, so. like, like, 90% of it in Latin, because I was like, what? And then and, they, they show uh, the drawing, and I was like, what? <laughs> it doesn't even... And I love how, like, uh, yeah. he's also worried about, like, people saying the drawing. Yeah. And, uh, the title of Come In By Then. <laughs> oh, let's go. I hope so. Those girls, they were scared for life. Um, uh, how about the, the ending? What did you think? It was one of those where... I don't know. I was so poised for tragedy. And I kind of felt like, as tragic as it is, because Clive will never know that happiness that that they're gonna they're you know ostensibly going to have you know but and at the same time it's like well are morris and are they really going to run off is it really going to work out for them but at the same time i don't know i I, it felt it felt like it should end in tragedy yeah (laughs) it felt a little bit too even that it may be that just the fact that they had their big you know reunion which i liked but at the same time it was like "Mm." i was just waiting for them to have like you know the cops to come in yeah yeah i don't know especially after having you know they they put they show so much of what happens to you whenever i think that knowing because they both read in the book that i did like years and years ago i don't know mm. exactly all the differences between the movie and the the book uh but between watching the b- movie and reading the book uh both already knowing the thing of the authors being uh in the closet as it were mm. at the time of making the book writing the book or making the movie that i think that it's that one of those few cases of fantasy that i mm. will allow that even though it doesn't suit the story it really suits my enjoyment of the movie because it's them going like see like they have to believe the world love will conquer it mm. all because otherwise what's the point of like creating art and do everything else and also, I think that it was like a comment as well that it's like gay relationships can't have a happy ending as well. Mm. There is a message to other gay people, and there's like since this movie got uh, re-released, yeah, this year actually, uh, like in March or something, it was like really nice print mm. that um, so many uh, gay men, in particular, of, that were born in the eighties or were around in the eighties, would say how impactful it was for not only a movie that it was so nonchalant about being a gay love story that mm. we always mention that it's like it's not a gay love story it's just a love story that happens to be gay yeah be gay. have gay characters 
and also that it has a happy ending mm. that for them like in the midst of a fucking AIDS epidemic fuck you the times yeah. uh, that it, there is an important kind of thing to mention that there's always the especially when dealing with uh, minorities or oppressed minorities in particular that mm. it's important to the message that you give yeah when you're uh, <clears throat> especially in the context of the time that you're making the movie I think it yeah <clears throat> just as you say that um it's obviously like you know when they get together you're like ah but you know because you really believe like the the like the passionate scenes is like you know as still chaste as they are you believe in the passion and everything but um just you saying that it does make me think like when you were talking about um the next picture or not the next picture show we'll get into that um we were talking about um call me by your name and I can't remember, it was one of the critics on, I think it was the next picture show where she was talking about she watched it with a load of gay men. And how, for them, that film is like, it's so, it's so important to them because like, like, call me by your name, not this film. Because never at any point do they feel under threat as gay people. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that really, the only, the worst thing that can happen here is that their hearts are broken. It's more like the, the, I think the. the so it's kind of like, that's the evolution of this. Yeah, you know, in within cinema and telling these stories and within that, like, James Ivory Scanlon, huh? Within James Ivory, yeah, exactly. Scanlon. So it's kind of impressive, really. <laughs> you know, it really is like there's a real thorough line there that, um, yeah, like because I think it, I agree with you that it's kind of in the same issue that we had with, um, um, oh fuck, the gay farmers, uh, God's country with uh, God's own country. Um, and how like that had its neat little ending as well but at the same time it's nice <laughs> but I say that I don't think that this is a neat little ending as well no, because the it's movie not. does it's, enough to say that they're under threat no yeah, matter what they so do so it almost earns it but it's not quite as problematic as that film is at the end but at the same time they're not like a million miles away from each other and also but. like if they leave it's kind of the, the yeah they're having that, to yeah they're they're being chased out of their home like because, yeah, that if yeah. they go like to Europe, or, and then just a, a side comment while we're at it, that I really like how Ben Kingsley, even though he is like a conversion therapist, mm. is the most sympathetic person yeah. to the plight. That is almost that it's like I'm, I'm, trying, doing, I'm trying I'm, to help you. But... I'm helping you. I'm trying to do it not because there's a problem with you being homosexual. Mm. Is that being homosexual in England is illegal and is a danger to you? So if I can help you fight those emotions, mm. then it makes you safer, which is completely misguided. But it comes yes. from <laughs> a, a place of not trying to change the person in the way that conversion therapy in America works, mm. or even in England nowadays, that is, we have to change you as a person because you're wrong. Or like chemical castration yeah. or whatever, yeah. That in this case is... Uh, 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 I I want to help you change because society doesn't accept who you are and I want you to have a good life. Mm. And I think that even though it's the same, uh, perhaps the same tools and trying to get to the same effect, it is born out of sympathy and love for the other people. Mm. So much so that when he realizes that Morris is not able to... to uh, to keep those urges at bay that he should move because England is not a place for somebody like that that he should go somewhere that is more liberal I can't remember the sentence he says about England that England will never or England has always been uh, opposed to the realities of human nature or something yeah. I can't remember what he says but it's a brilliant line um, and uh, Ben Kingsley American accent is surprisingly good <laughs> yeah it's like kind of subtle uh, 
Anyways, um, what was your favorite thing? I think be the cinematography. I love how it looks. Yeah, and, it does look great. And like cinematographer, um, they did it. Like I don't know. Like I, it's weird. I haven't seen a lot of films that he did, mm. but I seen three films that he did, and they're all amazing. He did the uh, Army of Shadows with. Uh, uh, what's his face? The guy that did Le Samurai and uh, fucking Le Circle Rouge. Uh... Oh, Alain Delon? No, the director. Uh huh. Oh, sorry. Um, Mel. Um, um, Melville. Um, no, uh, Jean Pierre uh, Melville, yeah. yeah. He did uh, Army of Shadows, that is the movie about the French Resistance. Which I wish is it was good. Alain Delon. <laughs> uh, he did do uh, an Eric Romer movie. I can't remember the title of it, but uh, an amazing looking Eric Romer movie as well. So, like, it's. Uh, He's really like it's just like the fucking scene when they go to the grotto, the the <laughs> goblins grotto. I just wanted to see what the fuck is inside because he goes like, "Oh, my sister got lost inside." No, he he locked her in there for yeah. like a whole day or something. I was like, Jesus. Um, and I I think uh, no, my favorite thing. <laughs> sorry, it's one moment in a okay. film, and there's very few films that are like that. Mm. It's when Morris uh, says to his younger sister. That he's sorry that he lied about mm. uh, about. I love Arthur now. <laughs> and that he goes, oh yes, uh, what was the line? The oh people to uh, people who are in love to ma- marry is a very jolly <gasps> yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's so hard, but he's nearly crying, yeah. both because he is admitting that him and Clive are over, mm. two that he really punished his sister for something that she never did, and three realizing that he'll never have what she is gonna have. And Arthur is a dick as well. <laughs> <laughs> With a fucking Sherlock Holmes hat and just like mine just I never know. Uh, yeah. I'm the lucky bugger that is gonna marry her. Huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, I just love hating rich people. It's great. Um, my favorite thing is oh Cambridge. <laughs> no, probably mm, probably maybe Hugh Grant. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of things I really like. I mean, I I like the relationships. I like I, I like the performances. I like a lot of things. Hard to pinpoint one. I love the scene as well when they're in the in the study and they start stroking each other and just yeah. like it escalates to yeah, oh, yeah yeah it escalates yeah. What was your least favorite thing? Uh, I think that it's the thing of the war and mm. and I like it. It's very small, but it's such a big repercussion to the narrative because mm. if they don't know where they're going, like I said, that it's like the part of the irony especially because it was written in pre-war and unedited before like mm. Ian Foster died is that part of the irony and the the sadness of it all is like and also of the poignancy of the war happening afterwards that is this weird concoction of being a a book written a story written before the event that is tragic mm. but somehow it, portraying how tragic that event was because of how un unprepared and unknowledgeable the people that were to suffer were mm. you know that like it, the book or whatever if you finished writing it pre-war 1914 would have been like a couple months until like the whole slaughter would have begun mm. from the moment that he finished writing the book to the moment that it started 
So it's kind of like this. I don't know. It's kind of. You know how like in it's the like t- time traveled or something. It's strange. Like the fact of it being discovered. You know, like it not being read until later. And yeah. Yeah. It's a weird time capsule. Some sort of. I don't know. Trippy. Yeah. What about yourself? Uh, uh, <laughs> um, not enough floppy hair. Yeah. Uh, not enough waistcoats. Not enough Cambridge. Um, yeah, I probably would have liked a little. I did feel like the passage of time was a little bit. I feel like their their relationship. I would have preferred a little bit more of their relationship. The early days of their relationship. Yeah. I feel like it, they rushed a little to give more time to the end. I would have liked a little bit more of their like. You know, even the fact that their relationship is so chaste, you know, a little bit more of like Morris wanting more from it. And I do love that flip, though, you know, again, of how you think Morris is the side, you know, of how he Morris's initial reaction and how eventually it's him that ends up needing more. And yeah, yeah. I enjoyed that. But I would like a little bit more of that and just more of them wearing hats and being in boats and talking about yeah. the Greeks, really. <laughs> Like uh, the, the Greeks have no devil. I think the movie's two hours and twenty minutes, but it, it, it flies through it like it's. A, yeah, it didn't feel that long. Yeah, because that that's a big chunk of time. Yeah, but yeah, it's because it's you're moving through so much time, which always helps. I think with yeah. longer movies. I do love how they. Yeah, I think James Ivory always disliked uh, the idea of makeup and bad hair because it was the fucking eighties. Mm. So even like remains of the day and every like. Uh, it's all very naturalistic and everything it's the like everybody still fucking looks the same maybe mm. like mustaches come and go <laughs> that, I do that's love about it. the use of mustaches in this is on point it really because it's funny how different or the boxing yeah it's <laughs> such flappiness <laughs> old timey boxing no skill uh, yeah so uh, that was Morris um, yeah it has been oh Maurice shut up uh, it has been uh, it has been re-released this year so I think it's on I don't know if it's on Criterion or not but it's definitely been re-released in like a new scan of it and yeah. stuff so it's they're all pretty and out there waiting to be discovered um, but uh, yeah thank you thank you Ricardo um, glad you liked that like uh, I did yeah no crossed. I did like it was a bit it was a bit depressing as well like I watched it yesterday evening and I was kind of like Ugh. but at the same time I was like you know I did I liked the world yeah like, I got you know drew me in um, anyways, Ricardo, where can they find us? They find us on Facebook, The Recommendation Game, on Twitter, at The Rec Game. And they can find us on uh, email, The Recommendation Game at gmail.com. You can check our back catalog on the Dublin Digital Radio Mixcloud and iTunes. Rate us, do all those good things, reviews, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you can find us on Dublin Digital Radio Live every Monday, 11 to 12. And next week's film is our 100 what? episode. Yeah, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> Do you remember whenever we didn't have proper mics and we just had the H6? And <laughs> yeah, the panic every time that we recorded yeah. that we didn't know if it was going to record. Yeah, having to redo episodes. And, oh, the geez. missing episodes. We're such pros now. Oh yeah, the missing episode. We should have done that. Yeah, so Ricardo, what is our special 100th episode? It's Halloween. It's uh, it's Orla's pick, so... Well, no, it's not my pick. It's a special pick. It is a special pick, but it's like you picked it. Well, that's true. Okay, well, I picked it, but at the same time, it is a movie that we have mentioned multiple times. It's not Mad Men. It's the other one. It's Zodiac. And uh, are we watching the director's cut or regular? Yes, yes, we are. Get all that goodness.
Okay, um, 50 hours, yes! Oh, give me that Oh God, I'm so excited. Um, this is amazing, like 15 times at least. Is your leg dead? Yeah. Okay, cool. Just cool. like the, <laughs> that couple in some of No, no, they're in Sonoma County. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> I was Orla McNeilis. I was the Soviet speaking. Thanks for listening. Goodbye! <laughs>